I will get choked up when I look out among our church and I see our young people raising their hands. May that go with you for the rest of your life because when I hear that tune, it takes me back to my childhood, different set of texts there, but I'm walking down the aisle at the vacation Bible school holding the flag and going in as the processional goes. And I always want to march to that. But there is a certain march beat to that tune of which I think is very appropriate as we are warriors in God's army. His truth is marching on and we are certainly seeing His kingdom progress. What a wonderful, victorious hymn to begin our message from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. As we begin, as we stand together and begin this text today, let me remind you that this is just a wonderful and glorious passage in the Bible uh, that is even hardly surpassed by our New Testament text. This is the one that starts off uh, that beautiful passage that I'm not even in right now. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is how this passage starts. And he is giving a great hope for God's people of free grace and what he is offering to us. And this morning I would like for us to turn our attention as we think about the immeasurable wisdom of God to verses 6 through 9, which says this, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the righteous man, unrighteous man, His thoughts. And let Him return unto the Lord and He will have mercy upon Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are high than, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our Father in heaven, oh, send the Spirit to train our thinking and to form our hearts in the beauty and the glory of who our God is, far beyond our comprehension, and yet so intimately involved in our lives with your love. We pray that you would guide us with your Spirit and impress upon us your greatness, that you are the only wise God. You know all things. You do all things well and according to your will. There is no evil in you. And you do all things righteously and beautifully in holiness and goodness and truth. We pray you would apply this to us today that it would be a balm into our soul and a help into our, our lives in this very complicated time in which we live. So train us, we pray, in the glory of our God, and may we bask in that this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I keep thinking each week I'm going to get back to our old series, which is a part of a series, right? We've, we took some time away from Matthew. We're looking at the vision of heritage. We got a little sidetracked in all this coronavirus, and I've just not felt comfortable returning to that directly, if you will, though all of this is applicable to it. 
I pray each week, God, what is the message for us this week? And we have news each week for the last several weeks that is just new and fresh, and we need to hear from God in new and fresh ways. And so God led me to this passage and to this message this morning, and I trust it will be that which we are in tune with today with our spirit. When we consider this challenging time that we're experiencing right now as a congregation, not just as a world, the coronavirus, this pandemic which came to our soil and has come very near and why we are doing the things that we're doing. And in the midst of all this, a little Valerie struggling to hang on to life right now is a part of us in a very intimate way. The fallout of men around us losing their work and their source of providing for families, all the implications. And whether it be in this time that we're in now or even more difficult times of maybe tomorrow that we know not, when we see tragedies unfold in the world or we go through some very difficult trial ourselves. our tendency is to ask God, why is all this happening? And to make some kind of sense out of it. We ask this because in some ways we don't see any good from it or what can come from it. And we're confused and we want to have a reason for it. Sometimes we come to the place where we did not demand that God explain Himself or give us reasons, but we begin to try to determine and comprehend for ourselves what God is doing. We begin attaching reasons and explanations to what's going on around it. We try to find some good in it, or we explain it in some way that will satisfy our minds, our, our hearts, or our logic. On this very point, Jerry Bridges says in a book, that I read long time ago, that I highly recommend, trusting God even when life hurts. He says, we are unwilling to live without rational reasons for what is happening to us or those we love. We are almost insatiable in our quest for the why of the adversity that has come upon us. But this is a futile as well as an untrusting task. As soon as the recent pandemic began spreading the world over, people again began assigning reasons to it. Some claim it was God's judgment. Some, many, still claim it's God's judgment. Others would say it's a sign of the end. Others would say it's a warning of some sort. There's all kinds of reasons people have given to this pandemic. These are reactions because two, not too many generations ago, our fathers embraced rationalism. And rationalism is a worldview where everything must have an explanation. There is a way of thinking, a shape to how we process information and data and the way that we cognitively work in our minds that has been cultivated in us for the last several hundred years. It is a way of thinking that steers us clearly away from an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, transcendent, incomprehensible God. And we've been trained to think of God in very small ways. Even to bring Him down to our level of thinking. 
we would be very guilty of Erasmus, who was an ecclesiastical humanist, contemporaneous with Luther, of which Luther would say, Erasmus, your God is way too small. I want to give some context for this way of thinking. This is going to to go back and paint some of the context of this epistemology, the, the way that we think, the study of this knowledge that has formed the way of our thinking. And I want to give that first and then come back into the, to the text this morning. Because I think it will help us to understand what the influences are that have trained us into thinking this way. When I was in Italy this past fall, I pondered all of the ancient Greek influence in a very modern culture that was here today. And what really prompted my thinking, what really got me going, is when I visited the Cathedral of Siena. And there in the church of the Cathedral of Siena, with all of this high Renaissance art, was a statue of three nude women carved out of marble. Right in the middle of the church, named the Three Graces. It was a Roman copy of a Hellenistic original, and the copy that was there in the cathedral was dated from the 3rd century. Raphael did a painting of this later from this particular statue in the, that now is in the cathedral in Siena. I thought to myself, what are they doing here? I mean, how would you think about bringing your children to church and having to cover the eyes of your boys as they walk into church? And then I realized I'm in the epicenter where the Renaissance took place, was birthed. For some of you younger crowd here who may not know what the Renaissance is, the Renaissance is a word that means a rebirth. It was a vibrant period of European cultural, artistic, political, and economic rebirth in the Middle Ages. And what was it a rebirth of? It was a rebirth of particularly Greek and some Roman influences back in the classical era that then there was this resurgence of Greek classical knowledge, philosophy, art, science. And this period was generally described as taking place from the 14th to the 17th century. And it was really a rediscovery of this old classical era of philosophy and art and literature and all of that. The Renaissance is credited in bridging the gap between the medieval age or the Middle Ages and the modern age in which we live. It is really the Renaissance humanists that call the Middle Ages, that thousand years of history, the Dark Ages. It was anything but dark. It was during this time that there was a major change in a cosmological way. Uh, Cosmology is the way, technically it can be used today, the way that we study uh, the world uh, from a scientific. But there's a philosophy about a cosmology is the way that we view and has a worldview. 
For the previous thousand years, the way that the worldview, since the collapse, the implosion of the Roman Empire, and then the expression that came to fill the void was the church. And for a thousand years, the church had shaped the the culture and the mindset of even a cosmology that the way we approach philosophy and art and music and science, has God at its center. And so the cosmology of the Middle Ages was a very theocentric worldview. But during the Renaissance, this mindset turned to a man-centered worldview. The epicenter for this entire movement began in Florence, Italy, just up the road from Rome, which was the center where the Western church was located. Now what happens when you take a very strong, dominant, humanistic culture that invaded Italy into such close proximity to the most powerful religious center of the world, Rome? What happened there was a synergy between the two. Back to the statue. So I pondered this statue. I was even embarrassed to take a picture of it, but I was doing it to think on this and to study this some more. The Greeks believed in their classical era that the gods are pictured in their most pure form of their divinity when they are without clothes. All over Italy, we would see Mars, the god of war, and Venus, the god of love. And we would see all of this, and we'd, sometimes you'd see them with clothes, but in the purest essence of that, you would see them in their old Greek classical uh, honor in their nude, as well as the other gods. So this nudity in the Greek culture was very prominent It fosters right into the mindset of a humanistic, secular renaissance of this rebirth. So it's not surprising that nude art began cropping up all over the place and even in the church. When a syncretism with the world is rather than a holiness apart from the world, becomes the mindset. The icon of this kind of thing that was going on is expressed probably uh, most clearly with the Michelangelo's 17-foot statue of David found in the heart of Florence in the Academy of Florence. Mom and I were outside and here was the line for the Academy to go in and see David. An hour and 45 minutes long. I said, Mom, what else is in there? She goes, not much. People go there to see David. I'm like, I'm good. (laughs) So what's the justification for this? There's a mind that was beginning to be trained that in the most pure form of the human body, which was a deifying of humanity in their worldview, is nudity. This was the ancient pornography. 
See, modesty was an issue as a result of the fall of man into sin, but now man at the center is now deified and God is pushed to the margins and there's a whole new way of thinking that begins shaping the world. From this worldview of the, uh, is, is where the Enlightenment in the next two centuries emerged. The Enlightenment <clears throat> was a movement in the late 17th century into the 18th century that advanced the Renaissance humanism even further with an emphasis upon reason, rationalism, and individualism. This was the time that deism flourished. Deism is the idea that, well, there's a God that exists, but he's like the watchmaker, and he winds the watch up after he's created. He winds it up, and he puts it out there, and we let the watch take care of itself. Deism is the, is the belief that there is a God, but he created this world, and he set it in motion, and then he backs up and takes his hands off of it, and it just evolves in the way it does. So God is still there, but he's not there. And it's not the God of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin are two notable American um, figures in our American culture that would epitomize this deistic kind of rationalism of the Enlightenment. It is said of Thomas Jefferson's writing of the Declaration of Independence that that document is one of the greatest examples of deist Enlightenment documents that there is. And don't think that didn't have an influence on all of us. This, is, this document is not something Christians ought to be proud of. But it has greatly influenced our thinking in American culture. And what emerged in the Western church, and I'm speaking both here and in Europe, is a Platonism that's still very prominent today. Plato, that old ancient Greek philosopher, right, back in the classics, held that the invisible abstract ideas, which were called forms, that's what's real. The invisible abstract forms, these principles, that's real. And those forms are a denial of the physical world, which are just mere copies of those ideas. So there's two worlds here with Plato, the physical concrete world of the senses, which is just a copy, but not, it's not real, and the abstract world, which is where the true reality is only grasped by reason. And Platonism is a development that gave Plato a rebirth in the, very, in the church itself. It's a form of dualism and Gnosticism, of which even the apostle was speaking against way back in Colossians. And it has all of its different forms and variations on a theme even today. And it was a, this Platonism was a developed into a worldview within the church that attempted to reconcile Christianity with humanism and science. You see, even in the late 19th century when Darwinism's theory of evolution came out, that all of a sudden... Christians and the church embrace that. We have theistic evolution. We have all kinds of things that have spun up. Because it's just the way we think. It's how we think. It's very much in the church still today. It has very much influenced you, and it's very much influenced me. With all that background compressed into a very short time, 
It's here to make the case that we are trained and cultivated in a way of thinking that is often not biblical. And if we do not allow the Bible to retrain us, not just our minds, but in our hearts, even the way we process information, it won't be long before we erect nude statues in the church and are completely oblivious that there's anything wrong with it. That's how that works. So when we're confronted with things that are happening in the world today, like the coronavirus, our first inclination and the way our culture has trained us is to put a reason to it. It's a sign. It's, it's a warning. It's, it's judgment. But the Bible informs us to think this way. If we do think this way, it's not only not biblical, but it's antithetical to faith and trusting in God. We don't know why these things happen, except we live in a fallen world of our own making. And when tragedy happens to someone, our rationalistic minds are cultivated to react with reasons why it's happening. I wonder if this is because of some sin in his life. Oh, I bet it's because of this cause and effect. And we begin thinking in that direction. So we need to be retrained in a different way. That must be centered on God. We need to recover this theocentric cosmology, the old medieval theocentric way of thinking. So let's get out of our cultural training where men and his reason and his explanations are the king. And let us get God back at the center and let's see how different these two are. This is not a message to throw reason under the bus. This is a message to say, let's get our reason centered back on God. Isaiah 55 was written to God's people. And writing to God's people who had sinned and fallen short, and God was uh, judging them specifically, revealed in the Scripture that this is going to happen. He says, Now let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You have to have a different way of thinking, he tells them. Your, your, your thoughts are unrighteous. You're not thinking the right way. And let him return, come back to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, and God will abundantly pardon. Let's look at two truths about God and His wisdom. As we think about retraining our hearts and our minds to who God is. And the first truth is this. God never explains to us what He is doing and why He is doing it. When things happen in your life, He doesn't explain to you why. Just like Job, God never explained it to him. Job never knew what we knew when we go and read it. And frankly, if God had explained it to him, he wouldn't get it. If God explains to us why he is doing what he's doing, we wouldn't get it. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher than ours. And His ways are not our ways. And we cannot attain 
unto his way of thinking. We seek the simple answers. We want cliff note versions. We want the nickel answer for the dollar question we just gave. And God says, it's too complex. I'm not that simple. God is eternal. That is a profound thing to think about. No one can get their minds around that. Scientists who deny the existence of God have to wrestle with that. When I was in college, I took a modern physics class from the student who was a student of Richard Feynman. Gave us stories of when Feynman won the Nobel Prize in physics. My teacher, the student of Feynman, was there to celebrate in that occasion. And here I am sitting under this um, under this man, maybe the grandson student, because I, I, that is too much of an honorific for me to <laughs> embrace, but listening to modern physics. He was explaining uh, in the first week of class how with the nuclear accelerators that we now have and the fusion that takes place, that the amount of energy that we can now uh, create through this fusion reaction is taking us back in time as close to the Big Bang as 10 to the minus 11 seconds. There's a relationship between the way modern physicists look at energy and time, and they are extracting the more energy they can produce, the further back in time and closer to the Big Bang they can get. But they have to ask, well, where did all of that come from? And they don't have a clue. This reason, this mind is governing so much that it becomes irrational in itself and it ignores the very evidence of things that they need to consider. God is eternal. And because He is eternal, He knows all things immediately. You know what Stephen Sharnock, who was... Wonderful book that he wrote, The Existence and the Attributes of God. You know what he says about this? He says, God knows all things, whether they be possible, past, present, or future, and he knows it all at once. There's no progression in the thought of God. There is no chronological succession and points of development of his thoughts like you and I think. He knows all things immediately. Sharnak says, quote, God knows all possible things because he knew those things which he has created before they were even created when they were yet in a possibility. God never knows things possible if it is not His power to bring it about. In other words, God knows in His power. There is such a complexity to the knowledge of God that we simply cannot even attain or mimic that perspective. We cannot even analog that perspective. 
We can dream up things that are possible. I dreamt of an office. You've prayed for me to build this office. I've been trying to build this office. I am now sitting in this office. But it was a possibility in my mind several years ago. And I had this vision of possibility, and there's a relationship between that knowledge of a possibility and to the power or the ability to bring about that possibility. But to dream up something quite impossible to bring about is not to know things possible. I don't know if you tracked with any of that, but God knows all possible things by His power. Because whatever is possible, He is able to bring about. I'm already teasing you with an idea that is far beyond our comprehension. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God knows all things possible, past, present, future. He can reveal them to us before they were yet known. And His thoughts are high. We cannot even attain into it. Therefore, it doesn't do us any good if He explains Himself to us and why He does what He does. Not only is He not obligated to do so, but we simply will not get it. To put explanations to why God does what He does in the world when He has not told us why He does what He does in the world is to bring God down to some humanistic level. It is not faithful to God. It lacks a trust in Him, and it lacks a trust in His wisdom. To try to explain God, or to explain His ways, and always put a reason to it, to give satisfaction to our souls in some way, is dishonoring to God. I've heard of friends grieving over a, a deep tragedy in their lives when their, their adult son was killed in a very sudden, tragic accident. The impulse was to try to make sense of it. Look how many people were saved at his funeral. God did this because, and fill in the blank. And there's this, this reaction that we, we all tend to have and wanting to put some explanation to it. Oh, that happened to them. Did you not know how they were living their lives? They weren't in church and da da da. And therefore, I would caution you, strongly caution you against that kind of thinking. It's a thinking that we respond and react to. It's almost like a natural impulse that can come, but it needs to be guarded and put away so that our thoughts can be then elevated up into glory and just leave things with God and let God be God. Now God often does give us tokens of grace in the midst of trials. I have prayed that for Lauren and Joe. I've told them to be looking for tokens of grace, but not for reasons. Tokens are assurances that God is present right there with them. He's showing them, even by providence of how things are happening, that He's there, He's in control, He's taking care of it. But it's not giving the reasons why. These are assurances for our confidence of Him and His presence with us. God never explains Himself or the reasons why He does what He does unless it's very specific. 
And if we're going to say that the coronavirus is God's judgment on humanity for whatever sins we can think of, our abortion, the Sabbath-breaking, idolatry, immorality, we need to have God's explanation related to the action. If He's told us this, then yes. But if He hasn't told us this, and we don't have this relationship of the action to the judgment, then we don't have that assurance. Now, certainly there are principles in the Bible about God's judgment for sin, but to call up something that's happening in the world and to make a specific application to that principle, we might be guilty of the sin in the manner of Job's three friends who were misapplying good principles, but to that man. So not only does God not explain what He does and why He does it, secondly, God's ways are incomprehensible. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are high. We cannot attain unto it. We're often tempted to find explanations for why things happen when they do. I, of all people, have been trained in this way of thinking. An engineer in a secular university wants to know why. How does it work? And there's not a bad thing about that way of thinking so long as it's centered on God. And when God says, you'll never know why this happened, that's okay. But a discovery of God's universe for the glory of God is a good thing. So it's not an irrational approach that, that we are embracing. It's just that God's ways are incomprehensible. We're tempted to find explanations for why things happen. That's just how we've been cultivated. That's how our heart has been trained, particularly since the Enlightenment. It was Adam's lack of understanding of this very principle that got him and the rest of us in trouble. Adam believed that he could be like God in knowledge. Remember the tree he ate from? It was a tree characterized with knowledge. If you were to tell Adam, hey, Adam, if you eat of that tree, Kobe Bryant, the world-famous basketball star, will die in a helicopter crash some 7,000 years from now on the other side of the world in a place called California. Now, how do you think Adam would have processed that information? Who's Kobe Bryant? What's basketball? What's a helicopter? Where's California? What does that have anything to do with it? This apple looks good. Chomp. See, while every little action and decision that happens here on earth seems to be unrelated to other people and other events in our future, they are integrally related. And God in His wisdom knows all the possibilities in His power. And He's governing all of the intricate details. And He's not giving us a reason why. And if He did, we couldn't comprehend it. We just have to trust Him. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to His purpose. And we have to rest in that. You have to believe it. We are called to learn from God's creation and providence. We are called to learn. We are to study it. But we are not called to interpret God's motives and the reasons why. 
We are not to give explanations to things God is doing as our humanistic, rationalistic culture has trained us to, but rather to trust in God's wisdom that is absolutely incomprehensible to us. As soon as we head down the path of explaining something that God has not informed us in, it's a path that leads us away from hope and from faith and from love. Those three Christian virtues. And the way to be cultivated in this biblical way of thinking about God that keeps God at the center of our lives, this theocentric cosmology and that doesn't bring Him down to our level, is to saturate yourself in the Psalms. Have you not heard me continue to say that? I cannot express how important the Psalms are in your daily lives. It will not only train how you pray and how you worship, it will form the whole way of your heart and thinking. The psalmist says in Psalm 131, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. The psalm is acknowledging that the psalmist doesn't know great matters of God. His only comfort is to calm and quieten his soul in the hope of the Lord. The wisdom of God is too profound for him. Even if God would explain it, no, that's not going to satisfy him. He's got to calm himself in the hope of the Lord. Who God is. God knows. God is good. He's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He knows everything according to His power. I can find rest in that. There's a category of the Psalms that's called laments. They are mostly unused in the church today because the church today doesn't find good reason for them. They're not relevant. They're not relevant in the church today because of a humanistic, rationalistic kind of thinking that wants to figure everything out and reason why everything happens, so therefore the lament is marginalized. Laments are marginalized in a humanistic worldview. They make perfect sense in a theocentric cosmology. Psalms of lament are there for the very occasions when God is working in the world and things don't make sense. The Psalms train us how to pour out our complaints to God in a righteous manner. The Psalms of Lament acknowledge life is hard. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand why this is happening. But it's not for me to understand. They call us to trust and hope in God who does know. To trust in a God who knows according to His power, not only the possibilities, but all things that will come to pass according to His power and wisdom. To hope in God that He is governing every detail of our lives. And He's actively involved in all of the whys, but He's not telling us 
And if he did, we wouldn't get it anyway. When life is hard and it's confusing, soak in the psalms of lament. They will teach our hearts, not merely our heads, to genuinely praise God in hard times. And we Americans, individualist, materialist, humanist, rationalist, generally deep down in our souls, generally pour out praise and thanksgiving to God in our deepest despair and mean it. The Psalms will train us to do that. And the Spirit will quicken this. When you learn to sing them, they will form and train you all the more. They will lead us to thanksgiving when our tendency will be shrink into ourselves and complain about the lot that we have. They will point us upward to God rather than downward to the happenings of the world. They will acknowledge this harsh and this unfair world. The psalmist wrestles with the unjust ways and the prosperity of the wicked and the cruel tactics of evil people against God's righteous people. And he will wrestle with that, but he will find God in there and he will praise Him. And he will hope in Him. And in the end, we will have clear understanding that what men and demons meant for our harm, God turns it all on its head and brings it to our good. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are high and we cannot attain into it. As the psalmist said in that psalm we read earlier, for you formed me in my inward parts. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my substance when they were not even yet formed. The possibility. The possibility, according to his power, is what brings him to be in the place where he can then write what he did. And in your book, they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. This psalm was written by the reality of that possibility of a wonderful, omniscient God who knew this according to His power and would bring it about for our learning and our training. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. They are high, immeasurable, and I cannot attain it. And we know that all things do work together for God, for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, to those who love Him. We know that that is almost a cliche, but have we embraced it with our hearts? without trying to figure it out. The Jews sought for a sign. They were looking for power. The Greeks were looking for wisdom. But Paul would say, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man His thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's let God be God.
And that'll be the greatest satisfaction of our souls when we just trust Him. Our gracious Father, retrain the way our hearts and minds think in this fallen world. To think covenantally, not individualistically. To think theocentrically and not man-centered. To think your thoughts after you, even though these thoughts are not achievable for us. But to train our thinking with the Scripture that even when we can't make sense out of it, and we don't know why, that we do know you're all wise, we know you're good, and no good thing will you withhold from us, your people who love you. Our heart is fixed, O God. Our heart is fixed upon you. And you have declared that you will do great and mighty things, and you will answer our prayers out of Zion, and you will reign over all of our enemies. And Lord, we acknowledge our great confidence today in these truths, but we also acknowledge our weakness to believe them. So we pray that you would help our unbelief and retrain our thinking that our God would not be too small and He would ever be increasing in capacity as our minds are formed into the reality of who you are. And so we pray this for your glory, for our satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen.